0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the EG Property Podcast. This episode is a very exciting episode because it includes our first really big EG interview of the year and one that myself, Sam McClary by the way, that's who's talking right now and uh, Tim Burke got very, very excited about and uh, had a wonderful chat with not one, not two not three, not even four, but five uh, new CEOs of the UK's biggest listed real estate companies. So joining me today is, of course, Mr. Tim Burke. Hey, Tim, how are you doing?
1: Hello, I'm doing good and very excited, as you say.
0: We are excited. We've been excited for a long time. (laughs) You will have seen, of course, dear listener, the the full interview uh in print in eg and on online but we wanted to to give you the actual the actual words of of the leaders and and share with you some of our highlights from what was a an hour and a half interview with four of those five in person um rita rose from Hammerson uh, unfortunately due to COVID was stuck in Canada so we didn't feel that it was quite fair to get her on a line at 3.30am at Canadian time so we had a, a separate sort of email chat with Rita so we can bring in um, some of her conversation we did bring it into the the live conversation as well but well let's start Tim about you know why we wanted to bring all of these leaders together in one place instead of doing individual interviews with with them.
1: Well I think there was so much change last year at the top of at the top of so many of the big listed property companies and it felt like as we drew towards the, the the end of the year in the space of just a few months you had what felt like an entirely new leadership team right across those businesses and it suddenly it looked and felt very different and I think it's fair to say that that these new CEOs have probably made the most diverse band of leaders in the big property companies that, that we've seen. And so you and I were were talking about how good it would be to get as many of them as we could together. So that rather than just sharing their thoughts and their views on the, the challenges and opportunities ahead with us and EG's readers and listeners, they were sharing those thoughts with each other too. So that it wouldn't be an interview, it would be a genuine conversation where as they settled into those CEO seats, they could bounce ideas and thoughts and hopes and concerns off each other. So uh, it, look, it was a real pleasure that we could get everyone together to talk us through, crikey, everything from COVID to the future of the office to managing the well-being of your staff during this time and making sure that, that real estate is, is understood as a force for good. Um, you know, not always something that we're convinced uh, policymakers and government understand, but um, something that after this conversation with um, with these new chief execs, I feel they're all uh, they're all going to make a very big effort in in changing.
0: Absolutely, and it was it was a really refreshing conversation as well, wasn't it? Because everyone was very very relaxed actually and very very open. I thought it was great, and we should. I suppose get on to what we want to share with listeners and and let them hear some of that that conversation so um those of you that have read the piece will see that um the conversation was broken down into into several key themes and and we're gonna bring you some of the the highlights around those those key themes and 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 let's start Tim with the first question that we asked, which was around how each of these CEOs found taking over during a lockdown and not you know physically being able to to get into the the new business that they had Mm. joined and you know press press the flesh as as we used to say
1: yeah what a yeah what a challenge to you know to take over leadership of a company um in these circumstances you're you're right and you know i think our guests were were very upfront about just how difficult that's been um and the, the you know the challenges that they faced so let's uh, let's bring our listeners some thoughts from uh, linda Shillor at harworth about how the pandemic has changed the hiring process uh Sergeant Samby at St. Modwell on the importance of networking in real estate, and Lansex Mark Allen on the kind of tone that he now wants to set for his teams, uh, having taken over as chief executive.
2: I was in process during the first lockdown. So, um, you know, so and, and that, and I think actually having spent, not only go, gone through that process myself, which was largely conducted on teams um, because in the early days you couldn't meet anybody. Luckily, it started to ease as we got to the end of the process. So I was able to, in a socially distanced way, for example, meet my chairman, who I spent quite a lot of time, you know, sort of um, digitally talking to, but I actually hadn't met in the flesh. But, you know, I met um, most of my board, you know, sort of I met by, teams you know i did sort of um meetings with the board um i managed to sort of get meetings with my executive team face to face there was this window you know around sort of july august where you could you could do that hiring has changed actually and i, I think it's changed um fundamentally and probably will never go back to how it was before you know we can do a lot with what we've worked out and we realized we can actually do a lot Um, you know, sort of through the media Mm -hmm. of Teams or Zoom or whatever we're using. Um, And I've certainly been um, on panels to hire non-execs and actually in one instance a chairman for one of my boards, uh, where a lot of that early interface and and, and selection process has actually been, you know, sort of through through the wonderful media of um, of teams obviously the final decision has to be has to be a face-to-face um we're hiring at the moment within our business and a lot of that's been conducted in that way it's made it quite difficult with certain key appointments um you know we're, we're hiring um you know uh, head of investor relations at the moment which feels like you know something that you have to sort of see that individual ultimately face to face but that totally got kiboshed by the last lockdown so we've had to be quite creative about how you know sort of we uh, we continue that process um but yeah the whole the whole thing was going right back to where it started very different to um, anything that i've ever experienced in my career Um, Mm -hmm. and arriving in the business became almost a continuation of how I'd been hired because I'd been going sort of on the, yeah, through Mm -hmm. lockdown on that journey, so... And maybe 18 years in BT, I sort of accepted the, um, you know, so we didn't use as much video conference because it wasn't as effective back then, but actually lots of audio conference with teams that were very geographically dispersed. So maybe my, I'm, you know, my, I was more accepting of the fact that I could do things remotely because I'd spent 18 years in a tech company where that was normal. Um, and it was probably the other organisations I worked in after that that it was less normal for, actually.
3: The text allowed me to kind of get, you know, get to, uh, to you know, folks in the industry probably quicker than it might have done otherwise. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, getting a time when, you know, both both um, parties were would be in London or the same place and um, and making the connection that way. I mean, I was fortunate. I did manage to grab Mark in real life uh, before I joined, which I really appreciated. Um, I managed to do that with a few others but I think in terms of networking you know it allowed it, you with the technology allowed you to do it quicker but I think the big caveat is it doesn't necessarily mean that you built relationships right and and the, there's this expression that you know a lot of this is empty empty calories when it comes to you know building social relationships and I I do I do agree with that you know I'm, I think everybody's itching to to get out and and meet
4: in real life. Focusing on how do we come out of this and make sure we can take advantage of the opportunities that will emerge and don't get lost too much in the worrying about the, the day to day. We've got great people in the business who are more than capable of running and looking after the day-to-day and I think from a from a board and a leadership team point of view it's really important and for the tone in the organization to be looking at that there will be opportunities from this, this this is going to end there will then be opportunities and our job is to make sure that we are in position to take advantage of those opportunities it's actually a great time to do a strategy review because everyone has just had a very kind of sharp shocking reminder that you know the the, the unthinkable can and does happen and therefore, we need to be planning and being prepared to be radical. Um, being radical in a listed environment, um, in the middle of a pandemic, before vaccinations—not necessarily what shareholders want to hear. So, you know, there's an internal and an external aspect to things. But, um, but I think as leaders, we do need to be prepared to be radical.
0: So, being being radical. Well, you know, I think that's. It's a scary thing to do, isn't it, for a listed company to be be radical? But it's definitely something that is needed as we come out of of these times. So really great to hear him Mark talking about mm. ra- being radical. I was going to say radicalism, but I don't know if that's really a word.
1: I'm not sure either. Let's just brush 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 past but, that one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that was that was what it's like to. To take over uh, remote control, as people will have seen through um, Mr. Burke's great punnage in in the in the issue, we <laughs> um, can't let that one uh, not be highlighted. Um, but then we then we moved on to, you know, well, what's what's next? What does life look like after after COVID? And what is this pandemic going to do to our places spaces? You know the places we go to work, the homes that we that we live in, and and there was some some really great insight there too, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, the the there was. I'll share uh, Rita Rose's uh, thoughts on this, and then we'll hear from a couple of the other guests. But uh, Rita Rose at Hammerson said, the impact of the pandemic has clearly highlighted that as humans we crave contact and we're hardwired as social animals. As a business, we provide the places and social infrastructure that are central to our communities, where people want and need to meet. We will continue to have a vital role in shaping city centres in the future. How people meet, live and work together will change. However, the fundamental desire to create connections and be part of a community has never been greater. And in response to that, Simon Carter at British Land shared a few thoughts on how he thinks our workplaces and our offices are going to change after the pandemic. And Sargent shared some thoughts on uh, how our experiences over the last year have changed what we're looking for in our homes. So here are their takes.
5: You've touched on two things from, you know, the the Rita Roses raised from a Hammerson perspective in in retail. I think the similar themes in offices around acceleration of some trends which were already underway and that Mm. real importance of um, human interaction no one quite knows what um, the impact of the pandemic will be on overall demand. You know, I, you know people have got hypotheses, you know, there's a, there's a lot of media coverage around work from home. I think it's probably pretty complex, uh, you know, depends on number of days people want to be in the office, you know, do they want to, number of days they want to be in the office, and which days they want to be in the office. You know, I think we all feel in a, In a world where you've just had a pandemic, we're probably not going to pack people in as tightly as has been the case in London offices in the past. So, you know, that's that's another factor there. Um, But I think the one thing that does really come through in the kind of customer conversations we're having is that people are really clear because of this quite extended period. Of working from home and being on Teams calls is what they miss about the office, mm-hmm. and it's about you know all of those things that we're all aware of. It's about training your staff, it's about building your your, your, your culture, and I think the one that probably shines through sometimes the most is about interacting with with customers. Uh, you know, businesses want to interact with their customers face to face. So what we've heard is this kind of flight to quality. You know, people are going to want the best space. Where they can, you know, they can showcase what their company does. They can make environments in which their teams are most uh, effective. So I think it is about that collaboration, training, interacting with with customers, and building company culture. And you know, that, that the space that um, will do that best. We probably have a pretty good idea what it is. We've been, you know, as a business and across the industry working on it for, for quite some time. It's, mm. you yeah, know, people want high quality real estate, don't they? They want buildings that inspire them.
3: Yeah, on the, um, I mean, on for St. Modwin's business, on home building, you know, I think I think the trends are, are super clear. You know, if I'm talking to customers and, and, and going through, you know, some of the feedback from customer focus groups, you know, the kind of hierarchy of things that are coming out, you know, like really important. There's the obvious stuff. I mean, broadband connection, um, reliability and, and speed is as, has, you know, kind of gone up in terms of needs. Um, then, you know, when customers are looking at a new property, you know, they're looking at where can I work, you know, in this house? and And, you know, we're having to kind of Adjust products so that it's it's quite clear that that you know the the space for home working is as flexible as it can be because not everybody can afford to have just a dedicated um, uh, home working space. Um, access to 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 outdoor space and, and and you know that doesn't mean you know it's on your doorstep, um, but definitely you know being able to kind of get out of the door and and have the amenities available that everybody's kind of got used to during the lockdown has has kind of gone up in terms of the the, the kind of hierarchy of 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 needs um and, I, and i'd probably just say that, that in, there's probably you know more more of a premium put on quality as well um, you know as everybody's been staring at the at the same kind of four walls um, they've in their head they've they've kind of made up their mind as to what they want from a new home and and quality is definitely right up there in terms of more you know more of an, an important requirement.
0: It's not wrong I've been staring at the same four walls for quite a long time and I do have the the luxury of of a space I can have an office in but you know I think the the idea of Bringing flexibility into into our homes, you know, we talk about it a lot in the offices market, don't we? But really bringing that into to every aspect of the built environment is really 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 interesting. And and of course that kind of viewpoint would come from from someone who is is new to the sector with a different different uh, different view on on what is needed.
1: I thought, you know, you're you're right to mention that. I thought it was so refreshing to have Sargent join us. that discussion and to get that viewpoint from someone spent many years at Centrica to get that take on what real estate is and what it offers from someone without that track record of of having worked for years in the industry I thought was really quite eye-opening.
0: Absolutely and and that kind of brings us on to our our next topic of conversation you you know Sajit was new talent coming into St Modwin from a from a different different area and we talked very much with with the leaders about talent and how you nurture it and how you attract it and and it was a it was a big part of the conversation actually and and uh, you know the value that people put on people for the good of their business as, mm-hmm. as well was was really brought across in the conversation wasn't
1: it yeah I, I think so um again this is the the whole issue of of well-being and nurturing your teams through very difficult times that, that people have really really found challenging uh, was clearly important to to all of our guests. Rita Rose brought up the the issue of prioritising the welfare of colleagues during, during events of recent months, um, particularly their mental health and she said the past 12 months have tested us all in ways that we never could have foreseen so making sure that our people have the right support and flexibility at work has been so important. How and what we communicate with colleagues has changed. It's more frequent, more informal, and more innovation to find new ways of working. And staying connected with everyone remains critical. And it felt like that really that really chimed with um, our, our, our panelists' experiences across the board. But we'll um, we'll place some thoughts from Linda about uh, that very topic, the importance of focusing on health and well-being, and then there are some interesting thoughts from Sarjit on the need to develop what he calls a more empathetic style of leadership
4: after
2: the pandemic this real focus as um as businesses and as employers on um the health and well-being actually of our people i think has never been as high if i'm honest with you in all my years in business you know the the absolute um I think depth of understanding that it's not just you know you can train people to death you can pay them like you know a great wage you can give them you know sort of all sorts of other things but actually if you're not looking after their mental health and their well-being actually you know sort of you are you're failing that that person and potentially sort of failing you're failing the organisation you know sort of um, in, in in due course and and I think that the pandemic actually has brought that very much to the fore.
3: You know, post COVID, there's going to be a need to kind of recruit and develop a more empathetic style of leadership, um, and and you know that's not that's not going to be easy to to do, especially with um, leaders who perhaps have come from you know more of a command and control um, uh, you know kind of school of of leadership. But I I just think that that's going to be absolutely critical. Um, for for the kind of next generation of, of leaders so one of the things that you know I'm, i I'd, I'd like to do is you know how how do you how do you kind of um create empathy in the organization and, and tim you asked the question you know what what has the tone from the top been i, th- I think for me it, it, it is making sure that 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 empathy comes down you know from you know from the top and and, and it starts to to kind of permeate through through all parts of the organization.
1: So I thought that was that was a really interesting idea, making sure that there's a a tone of empathy that starts at the very top of a company and as he puts it, permeates right down throughout throughout the ranks. So that I, I guess it, it it changes the outlook for everyone, everyone in that company.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's a it's a difficult thing, empathy actually. And it takes a really a really strong leader to be able to to be empathetic because I think it you know with that comes some vulnerability as well, doesn't it? And real humanity, your humanness, um, is needed in that. And those sort of traits were def- were definitely coming across to me anyway in in our conversation. And
1: then we moved on to
0: the sustainability big
1: one and the ESG agenda, the big one, which I I, I feel like this was the topic. That got our chief executives uh, the most the most excited during that discussion. I think there were there were a lot of questions raised. I don't think questions to which everyone pretended to have the answers, but there was a really interesting debate to be had. Did you not think?
0: it, it was it was fascinating to listen into because we are, you know, we. Hit, People are talking about sustainability a, a lot, and there is a lot of noise around it. And um, you know, the the greenwash word gets gets thrown about quite a lot. But the, this was leaders who you know see a real necessity mm. for real estate to take responsibility uh, in in terms of the climate challenge. But also, you know, a lot of sort of searching, I suppose, for for how to do it and. And and guidance and the the need for a level playing playing field, and and just uh, you know there there were a lot more questions than answers I think in in this conversation and I think a lot of calls for some you know some powerful thinking from from government and and collective thinking to collective solutions perhaps.
1: Yeah, well we'll play some thoughts from the CEOs. So uh, coming up here we have. Mark Allen talking about the increase in investors focus on ESG but why he's sometimes a little concerned that they're asking it more to tick the right box than because they actually want to know the answer. Uh, Sargent shares his thoughts on the kind of um, the kind of policy changes that might be necessary and the kind of assistance that real estate as an industry should be giving to government to help it work out the right approach. And some optimistic words from Simon Carter as well, uh, he, as he acknowledges we, we focused a lot on the challenges in this discussion, but he thinks this has become um, such an important topic to stakeholders of all types that he feels he feels confident within the next few years we'll be having some very different conversations.
4: I, I guess almost the, the the easy thing for for us all to say uh and, and this is across the whole sector this is the you know the equity markets as, you know, as well is that um uh you know sustainability is really important it's got to be at the got be at the, the kind of core of what we do and I I, have a, I I certainly have more meetings with um uh investors now where there are questions about mm. the sustainability agenda Um, about the path to net zero and in a small number of cases but it is a very small minority those are questions that are posed by people that are experts in that space. More often than not those questions still come across more as a they're kind of part of the the tick list of what investors need to ask about. So, So I think it's fantastic that as a sector and as a society we have got to the point where there is a general level of acceptance that sustainability and putting sustainability at the the core of our decisions is a really important thing to do. Um what we haven't seen yet is anyone make any of the really really tough decisions that become a natural consequence of that. Um and there are there are and there will be some incredibly difficult um things that will come from that. So, yeah, you know, the, the the thing you'll hear, I, I've certainly heard a lot about the built environment, built environment contributes 40% of carbon emissions, absolutely right. But so if you're going to look at, at that, and so is it about building new buildings, and then everyone measures net zero in a different way, and there's going to be this big argument about scope three. Yeah? It's like that thing where, you know, back in the financial crisis, you know, you know the, the, the big issue was well, there were always liabilities that didn't sit on anyone's balance sheet well I think we're kind of going to end up with the same thing as sustainability that we're going to have these carbon emissions that don't sit in anyone's carbon emission statement because they all say well there's my scope one there's my scope two and I do this bit of scope three and you sort of toss it all up and it doesn't quite get to um, where we are sort of in um, you know in totality but is it about building new buildings in a net zero way how you choose to measure or is it about looking at this existing environment and looking at how do you recycle and reuse what's already there which is you know, candidly, going to be the best way to minimise the the net carbon impact. Uh, to me, that feels like there ought to be a massive opportunity within that.
3: I think the answers won't come from government. I think I think actually we we need to kind of help the government say, yeah. here is here is a viable pathway. Um, and, and and you know that 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 needs I think that requires creativity in terms of you know just making it up. You know, kind of saying look, there's there are free allowances for emissions on, you know, kind of stock, whether it's office um, or or kind of leisure, which you just can't change, and and it's all about kind of the the kind of forward em- emissions. To give one example, and I think the government would be receptive on that, but on the, and also but also on the flip side, I think there needs to be more experimentation, and it's probably more on the house building side. To say, actually, let's just give it a give it a go, and then we can show what the art of the possible is, um, you know, without kind of um, um, you know kind of blowing blowing the bank. Um, so I, I I do think there's there's kind of more that the industry the sector can do, kind of pro, you know proactively uh, on on this kind of helping government because government government doesn't have the kind of skill set to to think through this, right? We where, you know, we've got the knowledge, you know, we've got the expertise,
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm. We focused a lot, kind of, on the challenges, but I I think I'm reasonably optimistic in this space now, just because no customer is so focused on it, and market forces can be pretty powerful in getting to the right, the right answer. So, you know, with a bit of some kind of standardization of of footprints and market forces, I think it will feel very different in three to five years' time. But but it's not simple.
1: Definitely not simple. And then finally. Sam, you asked a fantastic question to round out. Why, thank you. Our discussion, which I think again brought up some very some very interesting answers. do you Do you want to talk through the um the final conundrum that you put to our CEOs? Yeah,
0: sure. so it's it it's a bit of a bugbear of mine, and I'm sure <laughs> listeners will have heard me go on about it um, quite a lot. But I always have quite an issue with the real estate industry that it is really really poor at talking about itself in a way that is communicable and that people understand and you know never has that been more apparent than over the last nine nine ten months and the question I I posed I suppose that you know that one of the biggest takeaways that we've had from last year is that government and the public doesn't really understand what real estate is or what it what it does what it can do, and you know that we've we've seen this quite clearly in the way that landlords have been treated. Uh, you know, I said maybe mistreated um, during the COVID pandemic, and and I asked the leaders what responsibility they felt to change that language around real estate and and really make. You know the Joe and Josephine on the street, and government understand its importance.
1: And I think everyone had a great answer to this. So um, let's hear from our CEOs.
5: You know, I think that the, the starting point is really the language. That term "landlord" is so unhelpful; it really is Victorian. You know, so, uh, implying the upper hand. And so I think that's probably the the easiest win for us. But um, you touched on all of the things we should be doing. It's about. It's not. A, real estate used to be about you know owning a building leasing the space 10 15 years having a conversation with the customer in 10 or 15 years now it's just such a different business today isn't it it's just so much more operational you know we're going to need you know completely different real estate as we go forward for all of these trends that we we talked about and you know we invest and design great places we invest in the built environment that means jobs um, i think that's quite an important thing for the industry to talk about you know our, our government looks at at us as businesses sees that we have relatively small headcounts you know certainly sort of mark and i relative to the size of our businesses our headcounts are quite small but that doesn't really represent the picture you know in our supply chain there's, there's a huge number of employees and our, and you know our when our businesses are successful you know we're investing in the built environment but we're also investing in in jobs and i think you know we've not done as good a job as we could do at landing that as an industry would be my sense
0: thank you Sajit.
3: yeah i think i think simon, simon hit on it coming coming into the sector um and you know hearing the word landlord it, it was you know it was it it, it, did, it did kind of take me aback because I kind of thought, well, that's the customers, aren't they? Um, and 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 for me, you know, Mike, it's it's more than just the kind of language. It is that shift to, you know, to to just being kind of customer obsessed? And I know that that's that's harder to do in some parts of real estate than than others. But definitely, if I look at the logistics side of St. Modwin and and you know, Mark started this this push when when he was there in terms of just you know getting much more. Kind of customer focus in in the business, and then us expressing that kind of externally, and then and then I guess linked to that is if if I think about the voices during the you know across all all industries during the last twelve months, some have been louder than others, right? In in terms of being vocal, Um, and I think. One of the things I observe relative to where I've come from is that you know lead, you know I think there's you know r- real estate likes to keep itself to themselves and, and doesn't often put its head above the parapet and take a strong position um, and, and you know one of my kind of provocations to my team at least now is kind of we should be putting our head above the parapet but be you know choiceful on, on which issues
4: Mark. Yeah, I, I, I sort of thinking as listening to what both Simon and Serge have said there, and I, I agree I- entirely with with everything they they've said. But I, I think I, I find a sort of few different competing um, thoughts sort of going around in my head at the moment. So, so one of them is is that I, I think there is a really important part of this is actually as a sector looking in the mirror, and deciding really actually. When we talk about the benefit that we bring to the economy and the benefit we bring to society, is that actually right? Or are we just trying to justify we want things to stay the way they are because we quite like that? And I think there's a big part of this some stuff that we need to think much more carefully about. I mean, if you go and buy property and you borrow a lot of money to do it and you rely on the income coming in, is that really entirely someone else's fault when that goes wrong? I mean, that's my. If you're a, and this would be, you know, probably a little bit contentious, but if you, if you, if you build a shopping centre, if you incentivise yourself around leasing it in your teams to who's going to sign the biggest, who's going to sign the lease with the biggest rent number in it, and I end up with far too much fashion across all of my centres, so I haven't been very imaginative about thinking about how we curate a lineup that people are going to want to spend time in. Is it really someone else's problem when all of that goes wrong? So I think there is a, a, a sort of a, a, a moment of reflection. But then I find myself when I talk about sort of competing these is that then I think there's also a little bit where we, we are shy about actually getting on the front foot and saying, no, this is the value that the sector brings. And so I think you've kind of got that slight sort of Jekyll and Hyde element that we need to reconcile those two things. So there's So there is change as a sector that we need to be making and we need to acknowledge and we need to be advocating. And then there are things that we really need to be setting out. The worst of all is when you 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 find you sort of part of a narrative that's trying to justify something that you don't really actually buy into. My own view with respect to I me mean, still being with the rent moratorium on 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 retail I, from from day one, my view of this was that this is this is an extraordinary moment in time. We are providers of capital. This is going to be a one-off hit to capital. We need to be kind of sharing the pain. My frustration with that has then been actually how you then get that intent through between ourselves, our customers, what's going on in terms of the policy landscape to actually make that stuff happen. And then you've got others saying, no, 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 absolutely no, signed so the lease, you've got to pay the rent. I mean, it's just, a, a, it's just a, a, to me, a, a completely crazy way of thinking about things. And so it, how you reconcile those things and whether there's a way of speaking as one voice for the sector when you've got that modernisation and kind of, Aspects of things to be done in terms of our behaviour and way that we think about the contribution, the value we bring to society rather than the economy, and then actually being brave enough to put our head above the parapet, as Sajid said, and say, look, these these are the things that we do. Look at the jobs you create through the supply chain, all those other things. Um, you know, th- th- there's quite a lot to work through there, um, but something I certainly, from my perspective, very committed to trying to reconcile what may prove to be irreconcilable, but we're going to have a good go.
2: I think I was a bit more, I was a bit in reflective mode, actually, um, listening to um, Simon and Sadie. And, and Mark, I, I mean, one of the thoughts I had um, is, I think one of the challenges that we've got is, uh, as as a, as as, a, as an industry, is our speed of of reaction. So I'm sort of sitting there thinking, if you, think, you know, as as others have articulated, you know, we have this really archaic sort of structure, you know, which is a lease, which is actually sort of how we create value from um, our investment. But actually, we've not. Um, as an industry being quick to adapt to our customers you know sort of the people who are the tenants in our buildings and their requirements and some of the sectors that we serve and and maybe we've also not been um, innovative enough in terms of thinking that you know sort of going forward you know for retail let's say to survive in certain environments it's going to be maybe an element of but a huge amount of turnover and actually you know we've got huge problems as institutions, as institutions as you go through that process in terms of the value of what we've done, you know, sort of with our shareholders money and how that reflects as uh, it gets reflected as it changes. We've also, I think, probably not paid um, enough attention to making sure that when we're putting, um, for example, hospitality restaurants, um, you know, sort of into premises, it's been a big driver of, you know, around a lot of shopping centres in terms of footfall and dwell time. But actually, if the only way that operator can make money is with bums on seats because they don't have a delivery platform, they don't have a digital platform, you know, they might not have a dark kitchen. Yeah, there's there's things like that. That If you look at where we've got to, I think um, I always think like, you know, sort of the the sort of the plug your fingers out the dike, because basically it's never going to go back to how it was. And I think there's some real. Pain in some ways, in terms of getting us from where we are to a more flexible, more responsive, um, more flexible way of dealing with, you know, sort of um, our our tenants and our customers. Um, I think that's a national thing. I don't think that's specific to sort of one part of the, of the of the country, but for us as an industry, that's a lot of pain. and that's you know, and if we don't do it, we destroy a lot of economic value for our industry, you know the town centers, city centers, you know sort of it maybe won't thrive or be quite as shiny or it takes longer to reinvent. um, and I think there's a piece here I don't know how this gets articulated to government, and if they even understand you know probably the breadth and the of and the scope of the challenges that um, we as an industry will have to work through so I think you know I, I think that that's a piece for me I think it's also really London centric sitting here in a business that's predominantly in the regions um, and any task force that I see any you know we'll have a subcommittee that's regional Um, you know government has lots of task forces but it's the same people that are sitting on those task forces um, that have sat on them for probably 20 years so I think there's a piece here that you know when it comes to getting it I do think we have a responsibility to to talk and um, on behalf of our industry and speak up but actually we're going to have to break a few eggs and actually open up some whole New channels, you know, sort of um, to, to sort of get that message across. So I think this is really complicated. I think they, um, we haven't even scratched the surface of, you know, it's really simple isn't to say if you've not been receiving rent for a you, year, you've had a hit, you, you know, you've had a hit as a, as a landlord. But actually what landlords are about to go through, I think, is much more sort of seismic in terms of shifts. And if we don't do it well, we are going to see. Um, I just think a, a destruction of value in in the wider economy, actually. Um, but the, but we've got pain yeah. People are going to be accepting positions that they couldn't have seen themselves accepting um, uh, five years ago when they bought a building. Yeah, which today's worth half what it was worth. You know what, what they paid for it. I mean, yeah, it's, qu- it's quite it's quite quite a difficult sort of um, set of things to balance.
1: So, how were you feeling by the end of our ninety-minute teams meeting with the new chief executives? Inspired, hopeful,
0: inspired, hopeful. A little bit hungry because it was breakfast time and I, d- <laughs> I hadn't had breakfast before. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, definitely inspired, definitely hopeful. I think that we have, you know, they've 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 got a lot of work to do and a lot of responsibility sits on all of their shoulders but I think the very fact that they came together to have a conversation um, like that that we've just heard shows that you know they they care and they want to do the right thing they want to you know run of course run successful businesses of course um, you know create great returns for their shareholders but there was you know an emphasis on people on the planet on really showcasing the the value of real estate, which I think is a pretty good way to start the year.
1: I think so too. I think there was so much that stuck with me from the discussion. But if I was singling out one comment, I really liked Sarjit's point that looking at real estate from the outside, he saw an industry that didn't necessarily like to put its head above the parapet, but that he now wanted his provocation for the team at St Modwin to to be to do just that, to choose the right topics and make their voices heard. And I thought, you know, his, his use of that term, provoking people to do that just says so much because isn't that what you want from from new leadership at a time like this? That willingness to question everything, I suppose, to think this industry doesn't have to operate the way that it traditionally has. It is right to ask. Why have we always done things this way? Is there a better way to do them? And not necessarily to make change for change's sake, but to at least to consider that and to make itself to make itself seen and heard maybe a little more effectively than it has done in the past.
0: Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We really hope that you have enjoyed uh, both Tim and I um, blabbering on, but even more so um, insight from from Simon Carter, Mark Allen, Linda Shillor, Sajit Sambi and Rita Rose. And do click on the link in the show notes and, and read the piece in full too. We guarantee that you will love it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EG Property Podcast. We hope you found the content insightful and helpful. If you'd like more of the same and to keep up with all the latest news, views, analysis and research that the EG Group has to provide, be sure to sign up to all of our property podcasts and subscribe to Radius Data Exchange for unlimited access to all of our content and comprehensive commercial real estate data.